Well, good morning. September is always the beginning of our, 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 our ministry year, first part of September, and, and a lot of changes here, as Pastor Craig usually kicks that off. But today, look who's here. So a lot of changes here. Our, our, our series, I, I, we talk about worship, Christian worship. Worship of God. You know, what, what, what's the big deal about worshiping God? Why take the time to gather together to worship God? Every Sunday morning we do that together. People around the world do that. People through the ages have done that. So we're not alone, but why? It, it could be that we're just fools. I mean, what difference does it make anyway? So many other things that you could be doing on a beautiful Sunday morning in September. Weekends are precious, you know. You could be sleeping in. Some of you are saying, yeah, I wish I was. <laughs> you could go meet some friends at Starbucks. You could empty your inbox. That's something I need to do. All the clutter in my inbox. You could go hang with your kids. You could get your last-minute fantasy football roster together. Lots of things you could be doing. I mean, I mean, think about it. You know, with, with technology, you can access your favorite worship songs anytime you want. You know that? And you don't have to put it with songs you don't like. You can access your favorite preachers on a podcast. This is the 21st century, folks. Thousands and thousands of sermons are online at your fingertips. So why continue to go to church, to be in public with God's people? And for fellowship, you know, you can go on Facebook and get some kind of fellowship, they say. You can discuss all kinds of things with people from all over the world. You don't have to be bothered with people who disagree with your perspective. Lots of advantages to not worshiping publicly together. Folks, we need to have a good answer to that question in our day, don't we? And I believe the scriptures give us lots of answers. Christianity Today recently had a, 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 a poll of the Pew Research people about why Christians are worshiping. You know, church attendance is dropping in our country. Why are Christians worshiping? In our country, and I, I'm going to give you the, the, what, what I would say. With the, they said with the top ten reasons, and we're going to see if you, if the things that you've heard of there. The first the number number ten was to please my family, my spouse, and my partner. Sixteen percent of Christians said that's why. Maybe that's why you're here. I don't know. Um, number nine is is to meet new people, to socialize. Nineteen percent of people said that that's why I go to church. Number eight. To continue, continue my family's religious tradition, a traditional religion, they want to keep it in the family. 31% getting higher. Number seven, to, 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 to feel my religious obligation to go. They feel an obligation to go. Maybe duty, I don't know what that is, but 37% of people do it for that reason. They come to church for that reason. Number six, to be part of a faith community. 58%, over half, Christians say that's why they gather. They want to be part of a faith community. That's a good reason. No, no, number five, they find the sermons valuable. 60% said that. That's six out of 10. 
Which six are you, by the way? Um, <laughs> which four are you? Number, number, <laughs> number four, <laughs> for comfort in times of trouble and sorrow. 67%, they come because they want to find comfort among God's people in the sanctuary. Number three, the top three reasons, to make me a better person. 68% come to church because they want to be a better person. That's good. Number two, so my children grow up with a moral foundation. 71%. And the top reason, 83%, is to become closer to God. That's why people, according to the Pew data, Christians are going to church. Now, did, that's a, did you notice something in that list? I noticed that almost every one of those things are about me. Did you notice that? How it helps me. And that's fine as a secondary purpose, but something's missing. The, the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we've heard, you've heard it said many times, that the chief end of mankind is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Yeah, we get to enjoy him, but the chief purpose, the main purpose is to glorify our God. Doesn't God deserve the worship from his creatures? Didn't he give us life? And didn't he give us new life? Didn't he take care of our sins? And, and, and doesn't he provide us food to eat and clothes to wear and air to breathe? And doesn't he protect us? And doesn't he deserve to be praised? Let me begin with a clear statement. Worship is primarily about God and not about us. This means that even when, when you're not feeling it, when you're not yet seeing his provision, his protection, and his concern and his love, even in those dark hours, we can worship. We should worship. We can go to him who is our source, our strength, our hope, our helper. We can go to the throne and sing, because of who you are, I give you glory. Not just because of what you've done. Because of who you are, I give you glory, I give you praise. So in this series over the next few months, we're going to explore the theme of public worship, and we're going to do it from the book of 1 Corinthians, which is an interesting place. Today we're going to look at two, a couple of things. We're going to do a couple of things today. First, we're going to talk about Corinth and worship and things like that. The city of Corinth, this church at Corinth, and this, this letter of Paul. I want to show you the easy connection of this book to our understanding of public worship. See, chapters 11 and 16 are essentially talking about worship. <laughs> Paul's answering their questions about worship. You, you know, you're, you, you, you may be thinking chapter 11 and 16 of 1 Corinthians, and you think uh, uh, Paul addressed some interesting things there. How, how are we going to have some unity there when he's going to talk about uh, the gifts of prophecy and tongues or the role of women in worship? Pastor saying you must be crazy. How are you going to talk about worship through that portion of Scripture with those hot topics in the text? Well, maybe I am crazy. Well, that's my wife. I probably am. I don't know. But, but I want us to do a deep dive in these passages to, to think through these things because I think we're going to find that there's a lot of unifying things that we're going to see in these passages that we, don't, that we need to see. Our, our, one of our foundational core values, the first of our core values, is that we celebrate the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. And I want to give, give us a framework from the scriptures of why that's first, why that's primary. 
So we're going to talk about Corinth and, and how it connects with our church and with this reconciliation. The second thing I'm going to do today is we're going to begin to look at this passage, this, this worship series, uh, this Lord's Supper passage, the, the, the chapter 11. Um, we're going to apply that to very, very briefly to what we do each first Sunday of the month. We celebrate the table of the Lord. First Corinthians 11 is the classic passage where the Lord's Supper is instituted by the Apostle Paul. And the Lord Jesus commanded that his followers gather together in local congregations uh, uh, regularly in groups together to assist one another in the faith, face to face. Part of our gathering is to occasionally encourage one another by celebrating the simplest fact of our faith. We heard it earlier in the scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. The good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures about as basic as it gets. That's about as profound as it gets. Let's look at the, at our pause, look at the passage that we're going to be preaching on, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34. Let me read this, this from the ESV translation that you see on the screen. <clears throat> but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. God's word. Our title is Celebrating the reconciling gospel, celebrating the reconciling gospel. In the Lord's Supper, there, there's a seeing and there's a smelling and a touching and a tasting of the elements. And this cannot be duplicated through cyberspace. You've got to come together to do that. There, there's an encouragement that you're not alone as one who is resting in the forgiveness that's promised in the gospel and, and seeking to follow Jesus as a committed disciple in our world. You remember Elijah? In the, in the Old Testament, we sing song, Sweet Home, Sweet Chariot. That's an Elijah song, by the way. Elijah felt he, it was just him. 
<laughs> he was serving God alone. That his voice was the only voice. There were no other voices. And God reminded him, no, no, Elijah, there are others who have not bowed their knees to Baal, the false god of the Canaanites. It's not just you. You have some others. He, he, needed, he, he, was, he was in a place where he didn't have that encouragement of others. We need to be encouraged by others. What do, we, what do we want to say today? God invites us to come to the table to celebrate his reconciling death. God invites us to come to the table to celebrate the reconciliation, his reconciling death. It's a death which gives life, a death that gives life to those who believe. And we need to regularly be reminded of that. Now, the, the, the church at Corinth, the original audience of the Apostle Paul, Corinth was a city near a, a, a major land and sea routes. Um, and, in fact, uh, think of a map here. You can see Corinth on the map. It's circular on that map. And uh, uh, they had a, a system of, uh, there, there's a small isthmus, I can never say that word right, isthmus, um, between the two, two major portions of land there. And they had a, it, was a, it, was a, it was four miles long, and they had a system of pulling ships <laughs> across that isthmus so that the, they wouldn't have to travel all the way around. That, that geographic thing was very important to, to that city because the city, became, it helped them prosper because a lot of people who were traveling came through that area. There were also land routes going through there, and they had money to spend and time on their hands. And the city became rather wealthy. Uh, many became wealthy in that city because of just the geography that was there. Ships would get backed up as they waited to, to get rolled through. I understand that the canal wasn't, that's there now wasn't built until the 19th century, the late 19th century. So they rolled ships <laughs> uh, uh, across that isthmus. City with some wealth. It was a city that had great philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans and the intellectuals of the day. They came because there were people there bored and waiting to, to so they came, and, and, and we, we see a, a glimpse of that in, in the, the second chapter as Paul talks about how he doesn't, didn't come as a great philosopher with great uh, oratory skill. He came in weakness, only preaching the cross of Christ. Corinth had lots of mystery religions, uh, temples to the Greek gods and the Roman gods, the temple of Apollos and Aphrodite, world-famous temples, um, Temple prostitution was big business in Corinth. Again, the nature of that city, travelers with time, with money, bored, looking to be entertained. We get a sense of that from chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Corinth, of Corinthians. As Paul has to address those issues of immorality. Corinth it was an area that had important minerals that were mined. Bronze and other ceramics were there. We see some of that in 1 Corinthians. We see they had many business guilds which we created intense pressure for the Christians to conform. Paul addresses that, chapters eight, uh, 8, 9, and 10. The idea of what do you do when you're at one of these guild parties and there's, there's food that's been sacrificed to an idol. What do you do as a Christian? Corinth had a huge coliseum to the north of the city where the Ithmian Athletic Games, which was second only to the Olympics in Athens, were held each year. Every, every other year. And uh, the ruins still exist. In chapter 9, we get a sense of that. He talks about athletics in chapter 9 of Corinth. Corinth was a, melt, a cultural melting pot city. Now, in Acts 18, Paul goes to the synagogue, and, 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 and he's kicked out. And then he goes to the Gentiles. And there, were, there, was a, there was a cultural melting pot there. Paul was very discouraged when he got to, to um, that city. 
And when he got there, it didn't help <laughs> what he saw. In, in fact, we have a great verse, a couple of verses in Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, where, Paul, where God has to encourage Paul. He's at Corinth. He sees all this, all this craziness going on. He tries to build a, go to the synagogue. He's kicked out. He's discouraged. Acts 18.9, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Corinth was a tough city, <laughs> and it was, it, was, it, was, it was tough, and even, even a seasoned church planter like Paul was intimidated. Corinth. But, you know, light shines brightest in the darkest of caves. Amen? So during the darkest times of any culture, there's an opportunity for the gospel to make a major impact. It was true in Corinth, and it's true in Baltimore. Corinth, a city full of sin. Baltimore, a city full of sin. But Christ died for sins. According to to the scriptures. The Apostle Paul had four, had four correspondences to the church at Corinth. One has been called the lost letter. <laughs> it's mentioned here in the letter in, in, in 1 Corinthians. The second correspondence is called 1 Corinthians, the letter we're going to be looking at. The third correspondence is the severe letter where Paul said some harsh things to them. And the fourth correspondence is what we call 2 Corinthians. Just so, just so you know, the, 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 he talks about some letters, his previous conversations with them. There, we know of four letters that Paul had with them. They, they, he's in a major dialogue with this church, even though he'd been there a year and a half. They had a lot of questions, and, and, and he's trying to answer them. Paul commended them for their youthful embrace of the gospel, because they did. They had the one thing that's necessary to be saved, an awareness that they needed to be saved, that they needed a Savior. And so they repented, and they turned to Christ. And he spent 18 months there laying that foundation, 18 months. And still, <laughs> they have a lot of questions because they're, they're a mess. So the second half of this book, Paul's answering questions specifically about worship, about their public gatherings together. Now, in his previous communications, they're, they're, you could divide it up in a couple of sections. There were uh, questions about uh, uh, divisions, of the, the schisms and factions that they had, and about the immorality, chapters 5 and uh, following. But this section now, he begins to talk about worship. The last few chapters are about worship. Chapter 11, he begins to this worship question. And um, the first question, we're not even going to address that much. I was going to skip it totally, but I know it's an important topic for many of you. Um, women's head coverings. Women's head coverings. Wow. Clothing. What do you wear to public worship? Boy, we can have a whole sermon on that. I must spend one or two minutes on it. <laughs> Let me summarize a couple, just four things that I think that passage can teach us about attire. Worship attire is important. It is important what we wear to worship. It's important that we Wear clothes. Very important <laughs> that we wear clothes. Two, <laughs> men and women are not the same. And historically, clothing reflects a, that distinction. 
historically. Specifically in that culture, and even in some cultures today, where a woman who didn't have a veil was a loose woman. And in Corinth, where there was temple prostitutes and all that, Paul says, y'all women, put, put your veils on. Okay? Three. What, what is culturally appropriate in worship attire is not always universal. What is culturally appropriate is not always universally appropriate. In other words, I don't see any of you having veils on. So, there's, there's a, there is a cultural element to this thing. Um, and, and yet, here's an aside. Um, picture of my mom. My mom, by the way, some of you are praying for my mom. She's moving. A, her move got delayed. Maybe in a, next week she's going to be moving. That's my mom. I want you to see that she, she, she doesn't have a veil. She has a hat. My mom is from the church culture where you don't go to church without a church lady hat. I heard an amen from Sister Joyce. This thing is cultural, folks. In certain church cultures, you wear a hat, or, or, or they'll let you in, but they look at you kind of funny. You know what I'm saying? That's my mom. Love my mom. So, anyway, it's no surprise, listen, that in the cross-cultural early church setting, there's a question about clothing. It's not, no surprise. That happens in cross-cultural settings. And the fourth thing, I said it's going to be quicker. Believers should not seek to push the cultural uh, envelope, to push the boundaries, but, but we should live within the culturally accepted boundaries with modesty and grace. That, those are the principles that you see. You can look at that passage and study that passage. Uh, that's all I'm going to give you. You know, but, you know, I'm not preaching in Scottish kilts. I have pants on today. That's cultural. In Scotland, I might have a, a kilt on. I'm glad I'm here and not there, but that's just me. Craig Blungberg says about this, this passage, Paul has heard news that horrifies him from Chloe's people. Chapter 1, verse 10, Chloe's group had communicated to him. His comments are overwhelmingly critical, underlying the severity of their malpractice. So in verse 17, uh, the second half, it reads literally, for you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Verses 18 to 22 explain what the problem involves. And then he says in verses 23 to 26, the, he appeals to the foundational Christian tradition that teaches quite a different attitude towards the Lord's table. And then in verses 27 to 34, Blomberg says, explain the ex resulting implications of the church at Corinth. So that's his structure of the passage. And I've, my outline comes from that structure as well. Uh, my, I want to say that the Lord's Supper is a celebration of the reconciling gospel of Christ. And such, it is a celebration of our unity, verses 17 to 22, our unity with one another, of our union with Christ, verses 23-26, and it's a, celebrate, it, it's a time for the examination of our hearts before the Lord. A celebration of our unity with one another. Paul starts by saying he's heard that when they come together, they gather together, there's some problems that need to be addressed. This, this, the phrase, the agape feast, maybe you've heard that phrase, the love feast, the agape feast is what they were called. Um, uh, Leon Morris says, some who had brought food impatiently, starting before others had arrived. Slaves would often be unable to arrive early. The upshot was that some who were poor went hungry, and some who were rich drank too much. There was a sharp contrast between the hungry poor, lacking even necessary food, and the drunken rich. So they didn't just have cup and, and cracker. 
they had a meal. And in that meal, at the end of, in part of that meal, they celebrate the Lord's table. Very similar to what, G, what the Jewish practices are today, where they have the Passover meal. And Jesus took that meal on that night and gave symbolic meaning to certain elements of that meal. Well, that, the early church, that was their practice. They gathered for these agape feasts. Most of the churches met in the homes of the wealthy, and they had some problems. Verses, verses 18 and 19, he's heard, Paul's heard of the schism, the divisions that took place. The factional spirit plays out especially during these, these love feasts, these agape feasts, this agape meal. The issue was not just that some were arrogant. His issue included an economic arrogance. Those who had plenty to share felt they had a right to eat and drink and ignored those who had little to share. Common meals together were similar to the trade guild banquet gatherings that were so normal in their society. The Sagape feast was very similar. Verse 20, he says, this is supposed to be the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. It's not about you. It's about the Lord, but you come out, you come, and you make it all about you. 21 and 22, he reminds him that the main purpose of the agape feast was not the feast part, but the agape part. You're not there to eat. You're there to love, to express, express the fellowship that you share together, to celebrate that unity. In an ethnically and culturally diverse church, certain issues surface regularly. Music. Dating practices, authority and leadership style, time and pacing and clothing and food. And we desperately need to be reminded of our unity, our commonness, that the relationship that we share in Jesus Christ is above all those things where we have different cultural perspectives and practices. How important are people to Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Matthew 5, Jesus said that. Let's apply this to our church, particularly in the area of food, some of our food experiences. We have worship hospitality each week. and We, we don't have an agape feast, like I said. We have... The Lord's table is part of our, our, our expression of, of his death. But the principle we see here about waiting for others applies to all of our fellowship gatherings. Community group dinners, cookouts, worship hospitality, potlucks after church. You know, you know worship hospitality is not a lunch. It's not a lunch. Time to just get a little bit and talk to people. Potlucks, they are lunches. <laughs> People want to eat. <laughs> and we, we seek to create a, ba a balance by asking you to bring food according to your, your last name. That's, that seems to have been working, but we've noticed recently that less food has been coming. Just, just, a, just a heads up. Maybe like at Corinth, we have some issues. I don't know. A simple heads up. If, if you can bring more food, bring more food. Okay? If you can't, don't worry about it. Okay? Part of the agape feast is to, to have food to share. Now, the second thing in the passage is the celebration of our union with Christ, our unity with one another, and our union with Christ. And this is where we see the words of institution of the supper. Galatians 5, 
Uh, Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me, loved me and gave himself for me. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. There's a union with Jesus Christ that's because of the, that was purchased at the cross. That relationship was, began there. And Paul goes to remind them of that. That's what the supper's about, essentially, about, about the, the battered and mutilated and bruised body of the Lord Jesus Christ and the blood that he spilt. He connects it with um, the, the, blood, the new covenant in his blood, probably linked to Jeremiah chapter 33 and Exodus chapter 24, the, 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 the sprinkling of blood on the, on the altar of sacrifice. The movie years ago, The Last Temptation of Christ, Mel Gibson's movie, it was a bloody movie if you saw it, a very bloody movie. You know what? It was a realistic movie. It showed the incredible agony of crucifixion. Historically, there are four views of the, the, the body and blood of Christ. This is my body. This is the cup. There are four historic views among churches. There's the memorial view that says that these elements are only symbolic. There's no actual grace that's associated with them. There's the, the Roman Catholic view that says the elements miraculously become the body and blood of Christ as the priest prays for them at the altar. There's the Reformed view, our view, that elements have a spiritual presence that gives real spiritual blessing and grace to worshipers who partake of the elements. And then there's what's called the Lutheran view, which is somewhere between the Catholic and Reformed view. It's complex. I don't want to go into it. It's just crazy. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of me. You know, the Old Testament, you look at the Old Testament, over and over again, God says, remember this? Don't forget this. Remember, remember, remember. And God says to us, remember, and the table is to remember. That's the purpose of it. That's its function. We believe that God is doing something in us together as we celebrate the sacrament. It's not just a social exercise. The Holy Spirit is using this awareness of our sin and of our Savior to do his sanctifying work in our hearts and to draw us closer to one another celebrates our union with Jesus Christ. And the third thing is it's a special time to examine our hearts. We see that in the text, verses 27 to 34. He talks about taking the elements in an unworthy manner. Verse 29. He talks about discerning the body. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. What's this about? Is it the physical body of Jesus that's in mind? In, in context, it, it seems clear to me that it's more than that. It has to do with a heart that is right with the Lord, but also, more so, with his people, the body of Christ, the people of God. In the next chapter, chapter 12, he's going to go a long treatise on the church as the body of Christ. And, but so, so he's saying you, you, to gorge yourself at the agape feast shows you're not focusing on the Lord's death, but on yourself. It shows you're not concerned about your brothers and sisters, but only about yourself. You're ignoring the rest of the body of Christ. Instead of eating and drinking that which gives you a sense of God's grace, you're drinking judgment. You're eating and drinking a spiritual poison into your soul. But you haven't examined your heart and your relationships. So verse 30, Paul says that, that not doing this has led some to be under divine discipline. Some of you are sick. Some of you have fallen asleep. That's a euphemism. We saw that in, cha in, in chapter 15. You sleep. Death. 
It's tough. You say, what about grace? Well, it is grace. God's graciously slapping the church saying, wake up. Realize what you're doing here. God loves you too much to let you embarrass him by living like a hypocrite. Verses 33 and 34, he summarizes his thoughts by coming back to his theme that this examination comes in the context of their not loving one another in the agape feast. You might ask the question, what about children? He doesn't really talk about children, but I think it goes, there's an application for children here. The other day, um, Tuesday, I got a call from a pastor friend who wanted my opinion about a situation in his church where the parents insist that their children take communion as soon as they're able to drink from a cup. There, there are some who believe that since children can receive baptism in our churches, why can't they receive communion? He said, Pastor Stan, what do you think? I said, da, 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 da. <laughs> and then I, then I thought about this, per, this verse, this passage, this verse. Let one examine themselves. Can a, can a, one, year, can a one and a half year old kid who's learning how to, can they examine themselves? I don't think so. I don't think so. So there's clearly a difference between the two sacraments of our church. We never see the New Testament encourage us to allow children to partake, unlike the Old Testament Passover, where the entire family did have a meal. Something changed. This is time for unbelievers to feel the challenge of Christ. It's time for believers to receive and rest in Christ, to evaluate their spiritual passion, and if necessary, to repent. You ever get to thinking that the early church was pure and it had it all together? Read 1 Corinthians. Read this book. They were a mess. They need to be taught. They need to grow. And so do we. So do we. So what have we seen Paul address in this passage? He's saying there are two violations in the way that they're doing the sacred Lord's Supper. The first is a spiritual violation. They were ignoring the gospel sacredness of this sacrament, the sacredness of it. And second, there was a social violation. They were ignoring the, the gospel solidarity between the rich and the poor. Simple, think of it. Jesus' great commandment. Love God and love people, right? You're not here? Jesus called it the great commandment. It's really simple. Examine your relationship with the Lord and with people. That's what this examination is about. Michael Green, commentator, wraps up this whole passage, says this, that there's... The, the, the passage addresses where we are to look. Six things. He says, first, we look back. We look back to, to Christ's death for us at Calvary. Second, we look in. We examine ourselves, as we just talked about in our third point. Third, we look up, because our fellowship is with God. We look up to God. Then, we look around. We have fellowship with one another. Then, we look forward. We do this until Christ returns and we experience the messianic banquet in Revelation chapter 19. And then we look outward. We do this to proclaim his death until he comes. We proclaim God's words for others to see. This supper's self-examination is not about perfection of our life. It's about the direction of our heart. Are you walking in humble repentance before God? Is your heart committed to loving God? Is your heart committed to loving others? You know, we sadly see in the news uh, just the last few weeks the crisis of the Roman church and the crisis of, of, of Willow Creek Church, the Willow Creek mega megachurch um, in, in Illinois. And um, 
we ask, how can people who believe in Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, how can they regularly perform these rituals of the gospel and yet end up where they ended up? These leaders, these, 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 these individuals. And, 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 we, and we say, how does that happen? You know, it's not that complicated. It's not that complicated. You know, the, the counselors tell us that adultery begins not with sex, but adultery begins a lot long before that. Something happens before thing with spiritual adultery. Where there, there becomes a blase, there becomes a, a mundaneness, there becomes a, a, a routineness to that which is precious. And, 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 and we're called to remember him in the simplicity of the cup and of, and of, of the, the bread. And these are simple things. And it's very easy to, to just get into a routine and, not, and, and not, not experience the spiritual blessing, the spiritual presence that is intended. So pray for us and you pray for one another. That, that these monthly times of coming together, gathering together, be times where we truly experience God's grace and we examine ourselves and we move from there to really love God and love his people more effectively. Because that's what it's about. And when we don't, when it's just words, when it's just a routine, when it's just a ritual, when it's just something we do every first Sunday, beware. We could end up where others have ended up. Let me ask the officers to come forward. We've heard the passage. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup. This cup is the new covenant shed for the remission of our sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. When you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim or announce my death until it comes again. That's what we do. That's what we're doing. We give you time to examine yourself, to say, I'm a loving God. Do I understand the gospel, that he loves me and I'm responding in love? And am I loving my brothers and sisters in a real, tangible way? Take a time to pray. We'll pray. We sang that song, how can, and can it be that I gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Lord, how can, we, we're unworthy, <laughs> but because of Jesus, we boldly come to the table. We joyfully come to the table to find grace and hope and, and to know your love and your acceptance, your forgiveness through your Son. Use this sacrament, Lord, to, to, to strengthen us in our relationship with you. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we, in our church, we, if, you're, if you're new to our church, we welcome you. If you're a visitor and you know the Lord Jesus Christ and he's your Savior and you're connected to a church, we invite you to the table. This is not our table, the church's table. This is the Lord's table if you know Jesus. But if you don't, again, we, we ask you to let the elements pass and just pray. Pray that you understand what's going on here more specifically. Okay? And we, we pause and we, we drink, take the elements together. Okay? Body of Christ. <clears throat>